Wayne LaPierre resigns from the NRA. Plus, law professor Robert Leiter on why it's so hard to challenge new gun restrictions like those in California. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today. You get one email a week that keeps you up to date with what's going on in guns in America. And you can, of course, go deeper than that if you'd like by buying a membership and getting exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of news and analysis you will not find anywhere else in this world. So check that out today if you haven't already. This week, we are discussing the effective ban on gun carry in California at the moment and using that as a bit of a jumping off point to a broader topic here about uh, these broom response laws and uh, sort of the the nature of them compared to uh, you know, what what risks lawmakers who enact them face versus people who uh, are are living under them and may defy them. So to do that, you know, I figured we'd have a, a good legal mind on the the show this week, and and so we have Robert Leiter, who's a assistant professor, associate professor at at uh, George Mason University at the Antonin Scalia School of Law. Uh, so welcome to the show, Robert. We appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Stephen. It's good to be back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good to have you. I think. Uh, you're somebody who um, I always respect as an expert in this field uh, in Second Amendment law, and uh, and I thought you wanted to really have you on because there was a, there's a piece you wrote. It was it's a little bit old at this point; it's back from January, but it uh, of last year, 2023. But it deals with what something that I've been thinking about a lot since this stay was issued in the case against California's uh, sensitive places restrictions. You know, the gun-free zones that really effectively bar gun carry altogether in California, even though, um, you know, the Supreme Court, I mean, that, that was the core holding of Bruin, right? Was that the Second Amendment covers uh, the right to bear arms, to carry guns in public for self-defense. And now it's actually harder to do that in California than it was before Bruin came down. And at the same time, these legal challenges um, haven't haven't played out the way I think a lot of gun rights advocates would have liked, obviously, but also there's something more that we'll, we'll get to some of that, I think, uh, later on in the show. But first, you know, I want to talk about this concept that you laid out in this piece called uh, the, the asymmetry of, of legal liability that faced where essentially people who are subject to these laws could defy them uh, if the because they're likely unconstitutional. Right. And you've seen a lot of federal judges come to that conclusion, not all of them, but a lot of them in this the last year and a half since since they started becoming enacted. But that, you know, there's a lot of risk that goes along with that, whereas the lawmakers and law enforcement officials who are responsible for these prohibitions, you really don't face much risk in enacting them, even though they do seem to go directly against what the court has held. Uh, so can you, can you just talk, explain this concept a little bit more, this asymmetry of legal liability here? Yeah. So just as a quick preface, the uh, states that were formerly may issue states are replacing their may issue laws with extensive restrictions on where individuals may carry firearms. And there are kind of two sets of restrictions that are happening right now. They're the so-called sensitive place restrictions that say don't carry a gun in a bar or restaurant, and they're piling on as many of those locations as they can think of, hospitals. And then there's the second thing that's even more extensive, which is which what they say is changing the default private property rules to say guns are not allowed unless they are expressly welcomed in the on the private property. I don't think that's what these laws actually do, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole at this moment. We can discuss that later. But uh, what the, the combination of the two basically means, when you combine the two, there is nowhere that you can basically carry a gun. When you ask the sponsoring legislator you know, where you can carry a gun, he will forthrightly say maybe a few sidewalks. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and, and you've seen that in multiple states, right? The governor of New York said that about their law. Yes. And also, I believe one of the sponsors of the California legislation said exactly this. You can't basically you can't carry anyway. At least that's how they envision it. Yeah. Uh, but sidewalks. So, Some I mean, sidewalks, really. Not even and the ironic them. thing here is that the laws now are much more strict than before Bruin happened. Is, you know, if you're in San Francisco, getting a permit was extraordinarily difficult. But there are a lot of places in California that you could get a permit. And once you got mm -hmm. the permit, you were pretty unrestricted in what you could do. Uh, so they have replaced the system where people could choose where to live and thereby get permits uh, with a system that is basically a flat ban for the entire state. And as far as the asymmetry of risk goes, uh, they are backing these location restrictions with felony level penalties. I mean, to, you know, New York carrying in a prohibited place uh, comes with the same sentence that carrying an unlicensed gun did before Bruin was decided. So, you know, usually when you have these sensitive place restrictions, there are a few places that have felony level penalties, often uh, sometimes courts, often uh, schools, but most are kind of misdemeanors or infractions, especially if you have a license. Uh, but what these states are doing is backing it with felony level penalties. And what they're doing is they're putting gun owners at enormous risk that they're basically saying the whole state is off limits. And if you get caught in one of these places, you will be tagged with a felony and maybe you'll go to jail, maybe you won't. But at a minimum, the felony penalty comes with enormous collateral consequences, including loss of a right to own a gun. Uh, and so naturally, this is going to deter people because the Second Amendment jurisprudence at the federal level is still somewhat new and underdeveloped. And so there's not a body of case law that you can rely on to say this is unconstitutional. So from the gun owner perspective, you know, a gun owner faces felony level penalties basically every time he carries a gun off his own premises. The same liability is not true for the state officials. Uh, through various doctrines, legislature, uh, legislators have absolute immunity for their legislation. And it is not the writing of the law that is the constitutional violation. It's ultimately the enforcement of the law that is the constitutional violation. But police are protected by something known as qualified immunity. So if you try to sue for a violation of your constitutional rights, the courts will not allow damages to uh, to be laid against the individual officer unless the law was clearly established. And this is again a problem because this area of law is new and few things are clearly established right now. And so the Supreme Court with the conservative justices in the lead have said that you can't hold individual officers liable unless the law was clearly established by which they mean the officer either knowingly violated the law or, you know, is basically plainly incompetent as the court has said. And that's a very high bar to meet under any set of conditions, and it's especially a high bar uh, when you have a novel area. Uh, now, you might be able to have a federal prosecution for willfully violating uh, constitutional rights, but number one, the Biden administration is not going to do that. And number two, again, the, the mens rea here is very high, willfully. You generally have to show that the officer violated a known legal duty. And the officer is going to say, well, we don't know what sensitive places are, uh, can be lawfully restricted and can't. Uh, and so when you add all this up, uh, it's having the effect of deterring people from exercising their rights, because on the one hand, gun owners face felony level penalties. And on the other hand, uh, the government officers who are enforcing the law are shielded by various doctrines. Uh, and so, right. you know, it's kind of in a situation now where you have to be a little bit risk preferring to exercise your rights in California or New York. Yeah, yeah, and a, hand, and a number of other states too. A number right? of other states, uh, New Jersey and Hawaii, yeah. and some some of these other places that have passed these broom response bills. Um, yeah, I want, I want to get a little bit in, more into that, right? Because uh, you know, obviously, the I think the average gun owner would say, "Well, Bruin, they said public gun carry is a constitutionally protected right under the Second Amendment, so isn't that clearly established, right?" Um, but as you write in your piece, the the issue with that is they're not necessarily going straight at what Bruin specifically dealt with, right? They're, they're doing something else. They, you call it loopholing. Can you explain this a little bit? Yeah. So the loopholing idea is that what they're trying to do is find some legal artifice by which they can ban public carry. Now, they can't come out and say, 
uh, it is unlawful to carry a firearm in public. That would be squarely opposed to what Bruin held, and a court would enjoin that in two seconds. Uh, but what they're trying to do is say, okay, well, uh, Bruin said you can generally carry a gun, but it didn't say you could have a gun in a school. And I think most people on both sides agree that there's no constitutional right to have a gun in a school. Well, we're going to say a school, and then we're going to say a hospital. And, you know, you have a federal law, the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act, that says not only the school, but a thousand feet from the school. And what they're trying to do is basically add up all these. They're trying to do two things. One, they're trying to add up all these sensitive places to basically replicate a general ban. Uh, and so what they're in essence doing is trying to find, a, you know, if they can't ban it directly, they're trying to find a legal loophole uh, that lets them do it indirectly. The second thing that they're trying to do is they're try they're often some of these bans extend to parking lots and to other things. And what they're trying to leverage are what is known academically as the spillover effects that, you know, if you can't carry a gun in the school and you can't have the gun in your car, then you also can't have the gun when you go to and from the school. And for, you know, many regular people. You know, maybe you go to work, you come home from work, you pick your children up at school, you run an errand, and then you come home. Well, if you can't have the gun in the school or anywhere near the school, then you also can't have the gun while you're working. You can't have the gun uh, when you're running your errand. You have to, you would have to go home first. And so, you know, their hope is that if they have enough locations that are off limits uh, and there's nowhere to store the guns, it'll be too impractical to carry a gun and people won't do it. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's why I've called these effective bans, because they're not technically you could carry some places. But uh, I mean, even even in less restrictive areas like Washington, D.C., for example, um, you know, public carry uh, carry on public transit is banned, um, which makes it much more difficult if you don't have a car to get yeah. around to ever carry a gun. Right. I mean, that is this sort of the point you're getting at here. Yes, that's exactly, I mean, I think that's exactly the purpose. And I think public transit bans kind of come in two forms. Uh, you know, in a lot of jurisdictions, it may not matter that much because people aren't particularly reliant on public transit. And, you know, I don't know, a ban on public transit in the city of Los Angeles, maybe it doesn't matter that much because so few people take it. They all have their own cars. But there are a lot of urban areas like New York and D.C. where driving cars actively discourage. And a ban on public transit is a lot more significant because it's not just the ban on public transit. It's also the ban on anywhere you go after being on public transit. Uh, and so, it, in essence, base, it, you know, in an area that's actively discouraging people from driving their cars or owning a car, a ban on public transit may be basically limiting individuals to walking distance. Yeah, uh, it's also pretty regressive based on uh, the fact that a lot of poorer people are the ones who rely on public transit um, exclusively because they can't. It's very expensive often to keep a car in some of these cities. But uh, yeah. It's a bit, a bit ancillary to what we're, we're getting at, but it's an important point, I think. Um, I mean, it's not totally ancillary because a lot of these laws do have this regressive effect of mm -hmm. banning gun carry effectively by poor citizens. If they can't yeah. afford their own car. There's no way for them to comply with the Gun-Free School Zones Act in some places. Uh, you know, they might not have a private driveway. Maybe they do have to carry a gun from an apartment to a public street to access if they do have a car to access their car. And, you know, in some jurisdictions, there's no lawful way to do that. Right. Yeah, fair point. Um, but so, another thing that I, I think you get at that, that is a valuable insight involves the fact that, well, you know, some of these loopholes that they're going for are just only a hair away from what the Supreme Court was explicitly saying you can't do. For instance, in New York. You know, the, the, in Bruin, the Supreme Court, the majority talks about how you can't just make Manhattan, the whole island off limits because it has it's crowded and has a police department. Right. That was sort of one of the the uh, counter arguments in the case. Uh, and so New York, instead of making all of Manhattan off limits, made large sections of some uh, neighborhoods off limits. For instance, uh, Times Square that just made a vague area that they classify as Times, Times Square well past the famous areas uh, and said, you can't carry here. Uh, and that's really not that far off. And you could say that for a lot of these uh, these sensitive places in these other jurisdictions. But 
Um, you know, the, and and a lot of the district court level, you've seen judges say no to this, but but uh, for instance, the Second Circuit uh, Court of Appeals has said this is acceptable under Bruin. What? Why do you think that is? So I, the Second Circuit said it was acceptable, but that was only on a preliminary review, and it was sent back for more factual development. Sure. I think one thing that gun owners who challenge these laws have to be careful to do is to develop fully what the impact of these restrictions are. I think it's one, you know, it doesn't always occur to the judges when they hear hospitals and parks and a hundred feet, they don't always fully internalize what the cumulative effect of all these things are. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, some, in some of the more recent litigation, lawyers are getting a little bit better about including maps and drawing out like what this effectively means. So the second circuit's ruling was still in a preliminary stage. Now, you know, as you note about Times Square, uh, you know, this came up at oral argument in Bruin and what basically New York did is said, well, we're not going to only include Times Square, but the entire thing that they call the Times Square business district, which right. includes a whole bunch of businesses that are blocks away. You can't even see Times Square from a lot of these places. Yeah, that's uh, a Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the question on the loopholing front, the idea behind qualified immunity is that you do not want to uh, you do not want to um, impede officers from vigorously enforcing the law because of fear of personal liability. Now, it turns out there's some research by Joanna Schwartz and some other, you know, officers almost never pay the judgments. The judgments are almost always paid either by the municipality or the insurance company. But that message has never trickled down to the courts. The courts are afraid that if they impose liability like they used to in the old days, uh, that you know officers are just going to sit back and not want to enforce the law. The question I was asking the piece that you mentioned is, are we going to take a perversion of this doctrine, which, you know, you can understand that if the law is unclear, you might not want the officer to face personal liability if he guesses wrong. But what you have here is kind of an abuse of that doctrine where what they're trying to do is say, OK, you decided X, but we're going to try to replicate X with Y. So our, the goal that we have is the unconstitutional goal of generally banning public carry. And the question is, is that immunity going to extend just because the court has not ruled on the particular legal artifice to accomplish the unconstitutional ends? And I was suggesting that where your ends, where you intend a patently unconstitutional objective, maybe it shouldn't matter that the court hasn't yet ruled on the specific means uh, to attain those unconstitutional ends. The fact that you intend unconstitutional ends should be the end of the immunity analysis. Yeah, essentially because these, uh, the argument goes that because these lawmakers are essentially weighing out the fact that they are trying to infringe on this, this right the Supreme Court has identified that that is their intention going into it, that that should play a role in whether or not those enforcing it receive qualified immunity, right? Yeah, and it's not just their, the fact that they're subjectively motivated by this. Like they are actually seeking an unconstitutional objective. Qualified immunity was never intended to shield those who deliberately act unconstitutionally. Uh, it was intended to you know, shield those, especially in areas where the law was rapidly changing, uh, from uh, facing liability if they guessed wrong on where the law would develop. And I think perfectly legitimate case of qualified immunity in this space, you know, the uh, legislature bans guns in schools, courthouses and hospitals. And, you know, maybe the officer knows that schools and courthouses are fine. He's genuinely unsure whether the ban on hospitals will be upheld or not. Uh, the courts don't want the officer to face, you know, if he has, if faces somebody with a gun in a hospital, you know, a genuine dilemma about what to do because of uncertainty about what the courts are going to do with that. Uh, but, you know, the ban on guns in hospitals is a mile away from the ban on guns on basically all private property, which is a de facto ban on guns throughout the jurisdiction. Or, you know, the even more extreme case in New Jersey is the ban on loaded carry in all private vehicles. Right. Uh, which, right, I mean, which is, you know, you can only carry in New Jersey under the statute if you're walking. I mean, I don't think there's any question that's unconstitutional. And, uh, so, you know, yeah. How, how, how do you envision that would play out in, in practice? Because, uh, you know, I think gun rights advocates who look at the situation, they get upset at the lawmakers or the courts, uh, what have you, not necessarily the individual uh, police officer who's tasked with enforcing these things. So what, 
you know, I'm just uh, how how would a qualified immunity uh, uh, situation play out here that that you're envisioning you know, a potential um, elimination of that for these particular laws? What would that look like in real I life? Mean, it's a- Courts, I don't think, just to be clear, I don't think the courts are going to eliminate qualified immunity. Uh, the people who are in favor, the ju- judges who are in favor of Bruin also tend to be the judges who are in favor of robust qualified immunity. And I suspect as they collide, qualified immunity is going to win uh, because a lot of these judges are law and order types. Uh, but if the situation played out, as I'm suggesting, I think in areas where the doctrine really is uncertain, like specific, you know, hospitals, zoos, things where there's just not a lot of law and you could guess either way, qualified immunity would extend there. But where you have the really, really broad bans that are replicating total bans on public carry, those, I think, you would say no, uh, no immunity at all. But again, you know, the unfortunate thing here is that the legislature is driving this but it's the officers who get caught in the middle because it's the officers. It, it does not ripen into a constitutional violation until the officer decides to arrest. Uh, I guess presumably that would lead to perhaps legislatures being more careful about enacting these sorts of things if their law enforcement officers are potentially uh, held liable for what they're doing. Yes. And I, I also think, to be clear, you know, you have all these statutes being passed. I have not yet seen a law enforcement officer or chief law enforcement officer say, we're going to enforce these laws vigorously in this jurisdiction. Many of them are in a hold and see pattern. Some of them have said, well, I'm not sure we're going to go there. Uh, so, you know, to, you know, many of the officers themselves, the individual officers are also uh, pro-gun and don't necessarily agree with the policy. And so, right. you know, they may not want to take the personal risk. Of, you know, there is some risk that they face liability here, uh, you know, because there is this kind of attempt to undermine Bruin and is pretty transparent attempt at that. Uh, so, you know, the easy way for them to avoid liability is just not to enforce the law. But that paradoxically makes the law harder to challenge in court because again the constitutional violation is not the passage of the law it is the attempt to enforce the law against the individual and if no one is threatened with prosecution often the courts will say well no one has standing just because there's an unconstitutional statute somewhere on the books i mean there are a lot of unconstitutional statutes on the books (laughs) that that is uh, exactly what's happened with the the dc public transit ban that we mentioned earlier there have been i believe two different lawsuits against that and they've both been tossed on standing grounds because no one's actually been prosecuted under that uh, that law. So it's so the, can be hard. The to DC get Circuit has unusually severe standing rules, and I think those rules themselves should be the subject of Supreme Court review because DC basically requires you to be prosecuted. Most states will, most jurisdictions will say it's enough if there's a credible threat of prosecution. Right. And I don't think DC denies that it's likely to enforce its ban against anyone who is caught on the metro, but. Uh, the D.C. Circuit has ratcheted that up to the point where basically you have to be prosecuted. But to be clear, there is no constitutional right to a pre-enforcement challenge. And if you go back to a lot of the old cases uh, that people read sometimes on state state cases, I mean, those all arose out of convictions for carrying concealed weapons or carrying weapons into prohibited places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the law, it is not unusual in the law uh, that you are put at your peril of guessing right. Uh, so there's no, you know, we have these pre-enforcement challenges because we often don't want to put people uh, for obvious policy reasons between a choice of violating the law and suffering the consequences and not exercising their constitutional rights. But there is no inherent right to a pre-enforcement challenge. Mm, and I do, I want to chase that down a little bit more. But first, I want to, uh, and maybe somewhat related, uh, just discuss uh, this is a point I was trying to get at earlier with. Um, you know, the New York uh, Times Square issue, where it seems to, I think a lot of people would look at that and say, well, this, it's an attempt at loopholing, but it's a pretty weak one, right? It's its very close to what the Supreme Court had mentioned explicitly is not allowed. But the problem you face in challenging that is, uh, is where this law is, right? The same thing for California, Hawaii, Maryland, uh, right? That these laws um, are, are in in place in areas that the court system tends to lean more towards upholding gun restrictions, right? And this is something you talked about a little bit as as part of the the 
risk uh, analysis? I think there are two sets of risks here. The first set of risks is that the jurisdictions that are imposing these rules, they're in places like the second and ninth circuits uh, where the judges are overwhelmingly liberal. And if you look at what the Supreme Court does, the Supreme Court likes to say, we are not here to correct errors in the lower courts. What we are here to do is to ensure the uniformity of federal law. And the problem is that you never generate circuit splits, you know, where courts come to different opinions, because it's not like Texas is doing this and the Fifth Circuit's ruling one way and the Ninth Circuit's ruling the other way. What you have is you just have liberal jurisdictions doing this. And so you basically only have liberal courts evaluating them. And, you know, they tend to reach judgments that are adverse uh, to the gun owners. But you can't go to the Supreme Court and say, well, we have this conflict sorted out for us. So you have to say this is wrong. Please correct it. Uh, and the court often doesn't like to do that. And so it's often very hard to uh, seek review. I think the second set of issues comes in with the fact that I think most judges are not pro-gun. And, uh, you know, that is true of most of the Democratic nominees, but it's also true of a substantial fraction of the conservative Republican nominees. And you take judges like Judge Easterbrook, who was one of the great judges of our time and a conservative Republican appointee. For whatever reason, the Second Amendment is a blind spot for him. And so even in places like the Seventh Circuit, I mean, this very much reshapes the law of the Seventh Circuit. That uh, If he took a more individual right approach uh, to the Second Amendment, the law in the Seventh Circuit would be quite different. But there are a lot of judges, Judge Easterbrook, uh, Judge Ludick until he retired, who are not, you know, and there are many others, Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, who are known as conservative Republican appointees, uh, but they do not like guns and they do not like the Second Amendment. And they think that the court erred in Heller and Bruin. And so, uh, you know, in the federal courts, you have gun owners basically appealing to a minority of Republican appointees for relief. And it often comes down to the luck of the draw of whoever the appellate panel is. Uh, although in the Ninth Circuit, it doesn't matter what the draw is because it's almost always reversed by the full court or by a larger panel of the full court, I should say. But, you know, that does just, the judges that you draw I mean, can really matter. And mm. uh, the odds are not good in places like the first, second and uh, the first, second, fourth and ninth circuits. Yeah. Yeah. And that and as you said, that's where most of the the laws that uh, gun owners want to challenge come out of. So it's difficult. I mean, maybe Texas could pass one of these laws and start <laughs> enforcing it just to produce a Fifth Circuit judgment. But. That would be, uh, that would be, I'd, yeah. it'd be really interesting to watch a political uh, yeah. operation do something <laughs> like that. You'd have to really yeah. explain how that uh, would benefit the, yes. uh, the pro-gun voters in Texas. Um, but, I'm sure a lot of them would be not happy. Right, it won't happen, but no yeah. circuit split, often no Supreme Court review. Yeah. You know, it's not coincidental that Heller comes up because the D.C. Circuit struck down the D.C. ban and yeah. upheld the ban. Who knows if Heller came, you know, had, would have come to be? Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely that's I mean, I think that's a very important point that gets glossed over a lot in this. Um, and yeah, circuits really do matter. I, I do not think that uh, the Fifth Circuit or even the Third Circuit would have. Uh, put a unexplained administrative stay on the California lower court ruling that found all of California's sensitive places um, unconstitutional, but that's just guessing, you know, uh, just speculation. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, maybe I think sometimes people read too much into the administrative stay. Sometimes these things are just issued because judges, haven't had a chance to look at it and they you know they're either preserving the status quo or think they're preserving the status quo um well you know i think you'd you know, be hard-pressed to think quo. you're preserving the status quo in the california case there are that's why i said think of it because you know <laughs> obviously the status quo until recently was you could carry basically anywhere on a permit right uh, but i think you know from their perspective you have this judgment that uh, could upend uh, what the statute is, and sometimes yeah. they just want to say, "Let's just hold things." And yeah, for a review, and it's not. I tend to take that view of it too, but sometimes, yeah. like in this case, it's hard to uh, 
uh, it's certainly hard to convince people that that's what's what's going on uh, especially it may not the track be. record of the ninth circuit but yeah but it may not it be, is an important point yeah oftentimes we don't know who these motion panel judges are sometimes right. we know sometimes we don't but you know sometimes we don't know and sometimes too they just might as a courtesy say i'm going to preserve the situation i'm going to let the panel that's going to handle this on the merits sort it out because this is a big case and a big deal and yeah it's not right for us to get you know sometimes i think they think it's not right for us to get involved let the judges who are assigned the case get involved yeah although you would think that they should just leave the lower court uh decision in place then but uh, well but fair point there are risks to doing that. I think, mm. you know, I want to get into a little bit of the injunction stuff because I think there's Yeah, that's what I want to move that, to next, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a perception that if the injunction is in place, then it is lawful to carry the gun. Right. That is not true. Mm. Uh, and there's a great paper or a great article by Jonathan Mitchell of uh, Texas SB8 fame uh, where he talks about the writ of erasure fallacy. And, you know, the idea is that the injunction doesn't wipe away the law. The law still exists. And it is, in fact, the case that if the injunction were later dissolved and people carried a gun unlawfully while the injunction was in place, they could be prosecuted, including for conduct that occurred while the injunction was in place, uh, because the, the injunction simply stops the law enforcement officers from enforcing the law against particular plaintiffs. It does not wipe the law away. And so, you know, gun, I think the like average person doesn't understand that legal technicality and thinks that the injunction is in place, then it is lawful uh, to carry a gun. That is that is not true. There is legal risk, even with the injunction in place, that uh, if the injunction goes away, you know, they could come back and prosecute people who violate the injunction. I think, uh, you know, maybe they wouldn't be. Maybe they wouldn't do it here. They might very well do it in some of these assault weapons and high capacity magazine cases because mm. sometimes you'll get a district court stay and people yeah, the go freedom game stuff. on. Yeah, mm. people go game on. I'm going to buy everything that I can uh, while the stay is in place. But then the court, especially in places like the Ninth Circuit, uh, over uh, overturn the injunction uh, or stay the injunction, and um, you know those people have committed crime. You know crimes. Uh, or those people have violated the statute and they can be prosecuted for it. They just, the particular plaintiffs who are the subject of the injunction can't be prosecuted while the injunction is in place. And so these, right. are, these you know, these are dangerous things to do from a legal liability perspective. Yeah, I, I, that is an important point, especially because I think to the average person or even to someone like me, a reporter who's following this stuff, but isn't a lawyer, um, you know, and in the injunction phase of a case and the merits phase of the case often play out the same way, uh, at least within the same court, not necessarily on appeal. Right. But, yes. um, uh, and so it kind of can be mixed together, but, but I think you're making a very important point here that you shouldn't necessarily view it that way because especially, yeah, with freedom week sort of situations where, uh, you know, the judge puts a lower court judge puts an injunction on a ban on certain kinds of guns or magazines. And then for that week, uh, while the technically the injunction only applies to the plaintiffs, most law enforcement in practice aren't going to go out and arrest people uh, during that while the injunction's in place. But after it's lifted, yeah, I mean, they could still come after you for sure. I mean, the, the law just goes back into effect then. And what you were doing, it was always in effect, like you mentioned, uh, except for as applied to these specific plaintiffs. But um, there's, a risk, there's a risk to it. Even for the particular plaintiffs, the law is still in effect. The law enforcement officers may not be able to enforce the law while right. the injunction is in place. Just enforcement tickets. Right. But if a higher court determines that a lower court was wrong to issue the injunction, mm -hmm. then they can lift the injunction and the crime was still committed. Right. And, and yeah. But to your view, uh, do you think that goes the other way? Right. Um, if a law is in effect, but it's unconstitutional, um, I mean, there, there's obviously a, a well, well-worn saying in the, the gun owning community that it's better to be uh, judged by 12 than carried by six. And it's sort of this idea that, um, you know, if a law goes to the point of a, if a law is unconstitutional, um, perhaps you don't you don't have to follow it because it's not constitutional. But like, is that a valid point of view? I mean, I'm not. 
I, that I would advocate for people to do this, but I think it's a valid point of view. I think when you do it, you take on certain legal risks that a court might disagree with you. Right. I mean, you might even get vindicated years later after your case is final, and that won't help you very much. Yeah. So there is risk anytime you violate the law. Law enforcement officers get qualified immunity. Private citizens do not. Yeah. Uh, so this goes back to that uh, that the the difference in the level of risk here for a private individual versus uh, yes. lawmakers and law enforcement because. You can do this, right? If the law is, like you're mentioning here, the, the vampire rule, as they call it, this idea that you can't carry on publicly accessible private property unless they explicitly say that you can, that's very likely unconstitutional. Every court that I've yes. seen rule on this question so far has found it unconstitutional, even the Second Circuit. Um, and uh, so it's probably unconstitutional. You may ignore you may want to ignore that that rule but it carries that risk with it that's much higher for you than it is for somebody who, who might be charged with enforcing the rule against you yes and you know you may get vindicated at the end uh it can still be very expensive to vindicate your rights and pretty traumatic when you have a felony indictment so i don't <laughs> want to play that down i mean on the other hand i mean if you think a law is patently unconstitutional and you are well grounded in that belief then you know, I mean, it's a, it's not automatically the case that you have to be deterred from your rights simply because a court hasn't invalidated it yet. I mean, you know, I think I, I do think these private property bans are highly likely to fall. They're already starting to fall. Uh, they are not actually, you know, people call them vampire rules or have all kinds of names for them. But I think one of the things that I think is interesting about these rules is they don't actually switch the presumption. So if you had a presumption that was switched, it would be unlawful for everyone to carry a gun uh, on the premises, except if they were invited or they were justified as trespassers, what would otherwise be a trespasser, such as a police officer who was enforcing a warrant. Uh, but there's a difference legally between an officer who's enforcing a warrant and an officer who is buying a cup of coffee or is mm. off duty or retired or out of his jurisdiction or even better. I mean, you look at the list of exceptions in the New York and New Jersey and Maryland laws. I mean, a lot of the you know New York, New Jersey, I mean, they're exempting off duty law enforcement officers, retired law enforcement officers, out of jurisdiction law enforcement officers tax court judges, administrative law judges, workers' compensation judges. These individuals have no official reason to carry a gun on private property uh, without the consent of the owner. And so, you know, the other thing about these laws is these laws are so heavily gerrymandered that they're not actually switching the presumption. A true presumption against carrying on private property would say that no one could have it on private property, again, unless there's like a warrant or something that would justify what would otherwise be a trespass. Mm -hmm. And what they are doing is saying all the people we want to carry a gun, the presumption doesn't apply to them. But the people we don't want to carry a gun, they're subject to the presumption. But you have a total lack of fit between their asserted interests of letting private property owners control who comes on the premises with weapons and what they're actually doing uh, because retired, you know, retired out of and out of jurisdiction, off duty law enforcement, all that, they have no official duty reason for carrying a gun against the private property owners wishes. So, yeah. you know, I do resist a little bit the label of these as vampire rules because they're not, they're just gerrymandered bans. And, you know, I don't know what the rule would be if they actually switched the presumption for everyone. I uh, think that that's a valid point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's something that doesn't, switching it. They're doesn't, not switching it. Yeah. That's yeah. something that doesn't get discussed often in, uh, when we talk about this section of these Bruin response bills, because uh, it's, which isn't, which probably should, because that's the most expansive version. That's the thing that really uh, amps up the the nature of the, these, these Bruin response bills, because it yeah. applies so many places. I mean, um, people are litigating the hospitals and the religious institutions. I think the private property ban is the... I mean, that is the most significant thing because that yeah. is what makes you, if you can't stop and get gas or go to the bathroom, like you can't carry except maybe a few feet from home. Right. Uh, so I, I think the private property ban is by far the most significant thing in the Bruin response bill. I also think yeah. it's likely the private property ban is going to fall 
I am not sure any of these specifically enumerated sensitive places will fall. I mean, if it were me, I would be pretty confident that the private property ban would fall. I am not confident that any individual location like uh, summer camps or hospitals or zoos is going to be invalidated in the end. Yeah, but that goes back to that asymmetry of risk because you've really, yeah. you know, if you are going to uh, carry against statute in these areas uh, because you believe that the statute's unconstitutional, you better be very sure that you're right and willing to face any sort of legal prosecution that could take years to exonerate you, especially because these things uh, are in place in jurisdictions where you're probably not going to be in front of a very friendly judge. Um, yeah. And and so that and that whereas the risk for the government officials who are making and enforcing these laws is pretty low comparatively in practice. Even maybe they should not be uh, get the benefit of qualified immunity, but they probably will. They probably uh, so, will. And yeah. I don't think anyone's going to prosecute them for willfully violating constitutional rights. And even if they did, they'd have problems with the burden of proof. I think the one thing, though, you know, one lesson out of all this is gun owners are making a mistake if they think that the courts are going to come in and save them from all sorts of obnoxious legislation. Uh, they might to a degree, but the amount of gun control in a jurisdiction is going to be primarily determined by the political process. Elections matter. The quality of candidates and the people that are put up matter. Uh, getting the vote out matters. Most of this is going to be decided in the electoral realm, not in uh, the judicial branch. And so, you know, this is just if gun owners think they can give up on politics and litigate their way to their preferred policy, uh, they are making a serious mistake. And there are options. And, you know, no, they're not going to prosecute the officers. I mean, qualified immunity is probably going to shield them. But if gun owners win elections, there are other options. And, you know, maybe they're never going to win enough in California. But it, once you start violating constitutional rights uh, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, Congress can come in and enforce uh, by appropriate legislation the uh, to stop. They can enact appropriate legislation to stop the violation of constitutional rights. And, you know, one of the things gun owners could lobby for in a conservative Congress is to have Congress come in and say, for example, New York's licensing regime is and has always been unconstitutional. It has, you know, it takes like a thousand dollars to get a license by the time you're done with training and fees. Uh, it has frequently been applied in ways that are patently unconstitutional. You know, it, at various times, bribery in the process uh, has infected the process. Uh, even after Bruin, they enacted all these laws, many of which were declared invalidated. And once you build that record of unconstitutional conduct, much like Congress built a record of uh, unconstitutional discrimination voting, even after the 14th and 15th Amendments were passed, then Congress has the power to enforce the constitutional rights through appropriate legislation. Congress could come in and say New York's licensing law is not allowed. And, you know, if New York wants to require a license to carry a gun, it can only charge $100 and it has to issue the license in 45 days. And uh, so, you know, there is this power of Congress under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to override state law when state law violates constitutional rights. And this is an area that I think gun owners have not uh, have not relied on. But Congress could come in here and preempt specific jurisdictions that are violating rights. But again, you're, you know, these sort of and this is ultimately what happens in the voting context with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Supreme Court says literacy tests were not facially unconstitutional, which means that they're not unconstitutional in all their applications. Congress went back and investigated literacy tests and said, look, these are almost always used to discriminate uh, against minorities. Therefore, they wrote in the Voting Rights Act no literacy tests as a condition of voting. Uh, Congress could come back here and, you know, compile a record and say, look at all the different ways that these jurisdictions are trying to infringe the right to bear arms. We are going to preempt, you know, in these jurisdictions, these laws, and we're going to set, you know, the, Congress might even be able to set the licensing policy in these states and, you know, and do this. But this is all... You know, desegregation ultimately did not happen because of Brown versus Board of Education. Desegregation happened when the Johnson administration threatened to cut off federal funds for uh, schools that were still practicing segregation. 
Uh, Which was a while after the Brown v. Board. It was about 10 years after, maybe a little bit more. Uh, And so, you know, courts are not going to implement Bruin. The political actors are elections matter. And, you know, that's, I think, the core message here. That makes uh, makes quite a lot of sense. Um, all right. Well, look, we appreciate you coming on the show and uh, sharing your expertise on this topic. I think you're one of the most interesting writers uh, and academics in the space. So I uh, always like talking to you and and uh, and then you know giving you a voice for the giving you an opportunity to talk to our audience as well. So um, we'll have to do this again. I think in the in the near future, perhaps maybe when we get further down the line. Uh, on how the implementation of some of, some of these laws go, you know, what when we start seeing prosecutions perhaps related to these, because I don't know that I've heard of any in particular yet. Um, I'm not sure that they are, and I suspect a lot of the law enforcement officers are themselves too nervous. I'm sure they will prosecute the courts and the legislatures and those sorts of things. Hmm. I'm not sure the private property ban is getting enforced anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. All right, well... Well, we thank will, you for having me. It's we will absolutely bring you back here. on. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. And we will um, we will head over to our news update now. All right. Happy New Year. All right. Here we are at the news update. This week, uh, contributing writer Jake Fogelman is actually on vacation. So he should be back next week. But in the meantime, it's just me here with you guys. Uh, let's get right into the biggest breaking news that we've got for this week. Uh, sort of Friday news dump situation with the resignation of Wayne LaPierre being announced on Friday by the NRA uh, in what comes as a major shakeup to the gun rights movement. Uh, Wayne LaPierre has obviously been the face of the NRA and its leader for decades now. He's seen the organization through tremendous growth to the point where it reached uh, really the pinnacle of political power in this country where you know they effectively helped elect a president, Donald Trump, in 2016. They spent $54 million in that race. Uh, They grew membership to over 5 million members under his tenure. And now he's gone. But of course, one of the major reasons he's gone, it sure seems, uh, is that he has been dogged by allegations of corruption, some which uh, the NRA and he have admitted to. um, The use of NRA funds for personal expenses have been the center of these allegations. Things like private jet flights, um, fancy suits, luxury vacations, uh, lots of self-dealing accusations going on, yacht trips from the owners of companies that work with the NRA uh, that have really cushy deals with the NRA. Things of that nature have obviously been at the center of the NRA story over the last four years. And Wayne LaPierre's resignation, perhaps not coincidentally, comes as the trial in New York over those allegations is set to begin on Monday, uh, probably when you're perhaps hearing this. So pretty, pretty major shakeup there at the NRA. Uh, he, He actually will not be out of his position as executive vice president until the 31st of January. So he will be in there technically through this trial, at least most of this trial is expected to take six weeks. Um, and he's going to be replaced in the meantime in an interim role by Andrew Rulanundam, who is one of his closest advisors and has been for decades. And until just last month, actually, was the organization's spokesperson. Um, then he was they fired the head of general operations, which is the part of the NRA that oversees things like the gun safety training program. For instance, I am an NRA certified instructor that's done through general operations. Um, it's separate from things like the political wing. The Institute for Legislative Action is, is a totally separate legal entity. But uh, the head of, of general operations was let go last month and replaced by uh, Arula Nundam, who then was in line to become the executive vice president if Wayne LaPierre resigned or left, and that's exactly what he's doing. So Andrew Willanundum will take over, obviously a Wayne ally, and has been for a long time. Additionally, the one of the people who announced this resignation was NRA President Charles Cotton, who is serving an additional 
term after the board changed the rules to allow him to do that um, and forced out the Willis Lee, who was the first vice president that was set to take his place. So, um, you know, the, uh, one thing I will say, just as a bit of analysis here for you guys, and we've got a piece on this, of course, at the reload. Um, I don't think this changes very much in the short term. Uh, it, it's it's a monumental change to see Wayne LaPierre not be the head of the NRA, I think, for anyone in America, honestly. That's the, that's the level of importance the NRA serves in American politics, uh, and obviously, especially within the gun rights movement, and that he has been the face and the head of that organization for decades, since 1991, for over 30 years now. And him not being the guy anymore is going to be a long-term monumental change. Now, it's something that may have resulted anyway from this lawsuit in New York, this civil suit that they're facing, but uh, you know, having it happen now, I think, doesn't change much for the trial itself. Uh, although I will say that the NRA's defense in that case has been effectively that they had admitted to some wrongdoing, to some what they've called excess benefits being taken by leadership, including Wayne Lapierre. Although they have disputed how much that was by orders of magnitude, they're. Wayne LaPierre and other members of the leadership were accused of diverting tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars or a hundred million dollars or more over decades now, uh, of course, to themselves from NRA funds for lavish personal expenses. And so they haven't admitted to anywhere near that level of uh, diversion. And instead, they have uh, rooted out a couple of the people who were at the center of this. The former treasurer uh, is is gone. Um, Wayne's former chief of staff, actually, uh, Josh Powell, his name is, he just settled with the New York attorney general and will have to pay a hundred thousand dollars actually back to the NRA itself at the conclusion of this trial and won't be able to serve on any nonprofit boards going forward in New York. That's sort of uh, something that is at stake for Wayne Lop here. And that remains obviously on the table, even if he resigns and is no longer in charge of the NRA. Um, so the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who, to be fair, is a political opponent of the NRA, has called them a domestic terror organization when she was running for Attorney General. Uh, but she has also said that this resignation doesn't change her approach to the case. Uh, and I think leadership as you know, given the makeup of it, as I just explained, I don't think is likely to change its approach to this case very much, but they have sort of bolstered their legal argument that they rooted out some of this corruption that the people who were responsible for it are now no longer at the NRA. Uh, and that is the the argument they're going to take to court starting on Monday. And uh, perhaps it's a bit stronger with Wayne LaPierre resigning, although again, he won't actually be out of office until about halfway through this trial. So we'll see what kind of impact that has in, in the real world. Um, it's certainly a monumental change, though, to uh, the American political scene and, and the gun rights movement, especially. Um, but we will obviously be keeping a track of that as it moves forward. And you can, of course, read that piece that I alluded to of my further analysis on this situation uh, over at the Reload, if you are, of course, a Reload member. And other than that, we have a couple other big stories, too. It's not the only thing going on, although it is the biggest one. Uh, but we also saw, for instance, um, gun sales spiked at the end of 2023. This is something that we've been following, of course, since the beginning of the reload. You know, there was a surge in gun buying during the pandemic. Uh, during 2020, there were sort of a lot of reasons why people would, of all different stripes were motivated to go out and buy guns, and millions of people did for the first time. And that led to huge, unprecedented demand in the gun market, but has also led to years of decline since that point. And so th that's fairly typical in the gun, in the gun world, in the in the gun market. You will see a big spike in demand. Usually, uh, there's a preceding event that causes the spike. You know, some sort of uh, terrorist event or um, 
political action to try and tighten gun laws. You see spikes around election years a lot of times, uh, especially presidential election years. Uh, or, of course, you know, the pandemic, the uh, George Floyd's murder, the um, the riots that occurred after that. Those are all things that motivated people to want to you know, be able to protect themselves in, in America. That's done by buying a gun in a lot of for a lot of people. So uh, after that happens, though, you tend to see a decline back down to um, uh, towards where things had been before. Although generally that that decline has always found a new floor. The demand is always leveled out before, you know, you get all the way back down to the previous demand levels. So it'll you'll see a spike and a decline, but the new normal will end up somewhere above what the old normal was. And that does appear to be what's happening now. You know, this is three months in a row where we've seen uh, nationalistic criminal background check system ch checks, <laughs> the NICS system, which is what. Uh, when you go to, to a store and buy a gun, when you buy a gun from any licensed dealer, you have to fill out that background check. That's that's what you're filling out. And the FBI keeps a, tr a track of how many of those are filled out every month or every quarter. And this year we saw that in, I believe, going back to October, November, December now, sales were up or at least checks were up through uh, you know, compared to the year before, compared to 2022. So you're, the fourth quarter overall was also up almost 5%. It was about 4.6%. So I think that provides, in addition to some of the gun sales figures we've seen from the major manufacturers, Smith & Wesson in particular had posted its first quarterly profit uh, net sales increase, not profit increase, net sales increase over uh, really the last several years. So um a lot of us uh, in the media and also, I'm sure, in the industry itself have been looking for where this floor is going to settle out or when it's going to settle out. And now it appears there's good evidence that it has. 2023 overall was still down from 2022, uh, but at 15.8 million NICS checks, or at least adjusted NICS checks, because one of the things that's important to keep in mind with, with NICS is that it, those numbers can be can also reflect things like gun permit applications when you apply for a gun carry permit or a purchase to permit uh, a permit to purchase in some states in many states they will run a NICS check on you and so the raw numbers of checks are not a reliable way to track gun sales anymore instead uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation which is the gun industry's trade group will actually go in and try and use the coding that the FBI puts on each check, each cat they, they categorize them and they'll uh, estimate how many of the checks were actually gun sales related. And that's where the 15.8 million number comes from. That is down from 2022 a little bit, but it is still above any year before 2020. And as I just mentioned, the end of 2023 is where we've seen this pick up in sales again, this, this rise, this increase. And so that is likely to continue as well headed into 2024 for the reason I mentioned earlier, there's an election, there's a big political election. Um, and certainly it seems likely that the candidates in that election are gonna have very different views on gun policy. Certainly President Biden, who's running for reelection and has very little real uh, competition in the primaries is going to be very staunchly for new gun restrictions. And that may lead people, even regardless of who the Republican nominee ends up being, certainly former President Trump is uh, the front runner there, but he's facing all kinds of legal issues and and uh, it's a little bit more of a competitive race, not a lot more competitive, but a, a certainly a bit more competitive in, in on that side of the aisle. So we'll see, regardless of who gets that nomination, I'd expect that they'll have a very stark contrast on gun policy. And that may, that may motivate people to go out and buy guns as well. You see that a lot in election years. So expect that trend to continue upwards in 2024. The last story that I want to get to today, because we're just trying to keep it short without Jake here to uh, go back and forth with, um, is uh, we actually have a story that Jake wrote and did a great analysis piece on, which is uh, deals with Illinois' uh, 
so-called assault weapons ban and the registration aspect of that. Um, the beginning of the year, the deadline to register your affected guns in Illinois from this assault weapons ban uh, passed. So the numbers are now out and it was about 30,000 people total registered some sort of affected gun or ammunition in accordance with this law, which puts the compliance rate somewhere just above 1% of all gun owners in Illinois. And the reason we know how many gun owners there are in Illinois, because they have a sort of purchase to permit. I keep saying that backwards, sorry. Permit to purchase system. It's called the firearm owner identification card. So it's it's sort of a registry of gun owners instead of a registry of guns. And uh, so you, you can tell by looking at the numbers, um, perhaps how many people actually registered something under this, this law. Uh, of course, there may also be some law enforcement registrations in there. Uh, I have to check on that and see exactly how, how that works. You, you see that often in the with the National Firearms Act. They have a uh, there's they have a registry for all machine guns. But if you know anything about federal law, new sales of machine guns have been barred since 1986. Yet the number of machine guns in the NFA registry continues to go up every year, and that's because law enforcement officials can still are exempt from that ban, and they but they still have to register the. Uh, fully automatic weapons they have with the ATF. So the number keeps going up because of that, not because civilians have access to uh, new machine guns. But so there may be a situation like that here. We don't know exactly at this point, but regardless, um, it, we do have a pretty good understanding that not a lot of people actually registered something under this law, which is uh, really good evidence of mass noncompliance in this case, because while it's likely true not everyone with a firearms and identification card in Illinois owned one of the guns that's affected, um, we are talking about some very popular firearms, right? The AR-15 is the most popular fire rifle in the country. It's very likely that a lot of people in Illinois owned one of those before this ban went in place. Uh, and then, of course, the ban extends way beyond AR-15s into um, most semi-automatic center-fired uh, rifles would be included in there, uh, shotguns as well, and even handguns, uh, things like threaded barrels could require you to register your gun under this law. So it's very likely that most people who own these affected guns did not register in time for this law, which should not come as a surprise, as, as Jake explains in his member's piece. This is in line with what we've seen from really almost every major registration or confiscation effort in the United States and even abroad, uh, even places like Canada and New Zealand have had pretty low compliance rates, even when they're, uh, the punishments are, are high for these. But, you know, you can look at, uh, specifically in America, you can look in, at New York in the SAFE Act, which was a similar law designed to register AR-15s and, and other affected guns. Um, you can look at the New Jersey magazine limit ban when they lowered their limit from 15 to 10. Uh, New Jersey State Police had zero people turn in magazines for that. Now, you know, obviously these laws also include options to destroy or dismantle or or uh, move your guns out of out of state, things like that. So there are other compliance options in theory. Of course, there's no way to know how many people are doing those either if anyone at all. And then, of course, you can look at our reporting on the pistol brace ban uh, by the ATF. When that went into effect, most people did not comply with it, according to the estimates of the ATF. So, um, you know, I think at the high end, it was 8%. At the low end, it was less than 1%. So um, that's pretty common. But Jake, Jake does a really good job going through sort of the history of this and explaining it in more detail. So if you want to check out that or my piece on the NRA situation, you should uh, head over to reload.com and pick up a membership today. You know, you will get access to those pieces as well as hundreds of other pieces uh, that are news or analysis that you literally cannot get anywhere else. Plus, of course, you'll get access to this podcast day early 
and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment if you if you want to. We had one just a couple weeks ago, um, and I love doing those. Those are fun. Get some insight into to the people who keep this place going because that's the other thing a membership does is it funds our work here. That is how we make our money. We are not beholden to anyone else but the readership. And so if you want to support what we do, this is a wholly independent news organization. We are not owned by anyone else. I own the reload 100%. And <clears throat> we aren't beholden to any sort of advertisers or anything else. It's the people who, who provide our income are the people who read our reporting, the, the members. So I'd encourage you to go over and pick up a membership today if, if you haven't done so already. And then, of course, if you're not ready or, or able to make that purchase yet, you can help us out by liking or sharing this podcast with anyone you think might be interested. Uh, you can give us a thumbs up on YouTube or leave a review on your podcasting app where you're listening to this. We, uh, we follow those, uh, some of those comments and reviews and try to change the show to keep up with that. In fact, we've uh, uh, moved some of the personal banter sports stuff to the end of the show so people can get straight to all the news and they don't have to listen to that part if they don't want to. You know, we make little changes like that. Uh, I've tried to uh, let the guests speak more. Uh, that, that's a common or has been a, something people have requested in the past. So I, I do my best to to get more of our, uh, out of our guests. Um, and, you know, so I just, just the point is I try to listen and make changes when you guys ask for them. So, uh, yeah, so I do read those comments and reviews. <laughs> so please go ahead and, and leave me one. All right, that's it for this week. We will catch you guys again next week.